So let me read chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. This is God's Word. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is God's word, it's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray and we'll jump right in. God, thank you. Um, for, for your word. Thank you for uh, that these are, these are true words that we can trust fully with our whole life. And so God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we looked at the, the center or the climax of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount um, when Jesus is teaching his disciples uh, how to pray. And, and that being, being the very heart of the sermon... Because it's not just Jesus teaching us how to pray, but it's Jesus saying the most important aspect of Christianity is a relationship with God the Father. So if you are a follower of Jesus, He says you and the Father are one just as He and the Father are one. That's what He's communicating. Now, with these verses here that we just read, now we're, we're, we could say we're, we're going down the other side of, of the sermon's mountain. And this morning we're looking at a section of the sermon that begins uh, the, the outward discourse of what the Christian life is to look like. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to live uh, with God as your Father? And so this sermon is giving us a clear picture as to what our lives should look like as people who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' own description of what He wants His followers uh, to both be and do. So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you say, I, I am a Christian, in the Sermon on the Mount, we find the way we are to live our lives. Now, if you're not a Christian, and you're here, and you're listening in on this, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount gives you a sneak peek as to what is required of a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It's found in the Sermon on the Mount. Men and women changed by the Gospel are the ones who are poor in spirit. The ones who are considered meek. The ones who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who are merciful. Who are pure in heart. Who are peacemakers. Those who take joy in suffering and persecution for the, for the sake of the gospel. Those who are salt and light in the world. We are those who, who don't murder or commit adultery physically or in our hearts. We are those who fight for our marriages 
and have a biblical sexual ethic. We are to be honest. We don't retaliate. We give to the poor. We love our enemies. And we pray to a God who is real. A God who is our Father, and we are to build our lives upon Him, not ourselves. And so none of this can be done because you look at that list and you go, that's impossible. And that's exactly where we need to be. We need to be saying that is an impossible way to live. Because none of this can be done apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's the only way that we can live that way. And these verses here are pressing you to look at your life in light of the gospel again. They are calling you to a single devotion, a single heart. St. Augustine said, All our works are pure and well-pleasing in the sight of God when, when they are done with a single heart, with a heavenly intent. And this is a heart that cherishes Jesus above all else. And this passage here gives us three metaphors that describe what this kind of heart looks like. What, what does a heart look like that is devoted to the gospel? So it gives us these three metaphors. One is a single treasure. Two is a single vision. And then three is a single master. A single treasure, a single vision, and a single master. So first, a single treasure. Uh, human beings, you probably know this already because you are human, so you know this, are naturally thing-oriented. We are, we are predisposed to, to be wrapped up in seeking, uh, acquiring, enjoying, and protecting material possessions. And then, once we have those material possessions, then we build our lives around these things we've acquired. And in these first verses, we hear Jesus telling us that this is not the life we are to live. This is not what brings uh, true human flourishing into the world, and especially in the Christian life. Jesus says the opposite. Do not store up treasures on earth. Now before you start saying, well, well Dave Ramsey says this, let me just say that Jesus here is not prohibiting things. He's not telling you not to save money and to be wise with, with your finances and your possessions. What Jesus is prohibiting here is the love of these things. To the point that they will consume your heart. Francis Schaeffer, theologian, said, he says, we all tend to live ash heap lives. Meaning we spend most of our time and money for things that will end up in the city dump. And I would rephrase that a little and say that we spend most of our time, money, and then add this little part of it in thinking. Because it preoccupies us on things that will rust, be destroyed, or stolen. Think about that. Schaefer goes on to say, he says, practical materialism 
is difficult to escape in any age, but it's especially hard today because we all tend to be influenced by the Spirit around us. And in the United States and the Western world, most people have two values. Personal peace and influence. Are these your values? Is this what your heart treasures? Is this what you're teaching your children to treasure? Is this what the world sees you treasuring? If you said yes to any of these, our response to that is to repent and believe the gospel again. Because you, you've forgotten its fundamental message. John Calvin said, Our hearts are idol-making factories. Which means that, 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 that our hearts are not inclined toward the gospel. That's why Sundays are so important, because it does. It retunes us back to the gospel. Which means... If, if, we're, if our hearts are not naturally inclined toward the gospel, and even as believers that's true, uh, which means we have to constantly be coming back to the gospel and how it's, to be a tra- it, how it's to be transforming your life and transforming the way you think about all of life, and that includes your stuff. That's not exempt. Because this is what the world is saying to you all week. For six days, uh, probably, probably seven, seven days, because you're here an hour. So for seven days, get all you can while you can, then you die. I know there's a bumper sticker that used to be out a long time ago. I think, I think it's still out probably. That he who dies with the most toys wins. That's, that's the idea of the world. But the gospel says the opposite. The gospel says that Jesus satisfies all your wants and all of your desires in this world. And I think, I think, it was CS, I think it's C.S. Lewis who says, uh, where he talks about those, de- that, that, that those desires that you have are actually not bad desires. It's just where we place those desires that things begin to get bad. Those desires in you that you feel for that next shipment coming from Amazon or that next Target run or that new car that you've had your eye on, that desire there is only a a picture, a small picture, a shadow of a deeper desire that you have been designed for by God. And that is to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples. One is from the Old Testament, and then one is from the New Testament. So the the Old Testament example here is from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. King Solomon, richest man in the world ever to live, no one has ever been richer than he, writes these words. So I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Everything that King Solomon chased, he says, brought no pleasure in the end. And at the end of it all, Solomon comes to this realization that all of it held no meaning, held no, no lasting joy. And it actually did not fulfill the desires of his heart. He had to keep getting more and acquiring more. It was a chasing after the wind, he says. Do you find yourself chasing after things? Money, possessions, relationships. That once you attain them, you begin to look for something new to chase or buy, if you want to put it that way, because they did not bring your heart the contentment and the satisfaction you had hoped for. This is what Solomon refers to as chasing the wind. You can never get your hands around it. You can never grasp it. You can never control it. The 17th century French observer of American life and culture, Alexis uh, de Tocqueville, said this. He says, uh, and this is him looking out over America, 17th century. The incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And I love that he's, he doesn't deny that those are joys, but he says they are incomplete joys. And those incomplete joys will never satisfy you. The New Testament example is in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, the parable of the rich fool. You may be familiar with this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitra arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What a perfect picture of what it looks like to store up treasures for yourself on this earth. Jesus gives this example of a man who has, he has so many resources that instead of thinking about what he could do uh, for others or what he could ultimately do for God with them, he only thinks about what he can do for himself. And he covets his possessions. 
He, says, he, st- he instead says, instead of, instead of uh, giving whatever is overflowing out of this barn to other people, I'll just build bigger barns so that I can store it for myself. And God calls this man a fool. Because it's foolishness to exchange the eternal for the temporal. To exchange uh, your life for those things that will not last, that will not ultimately fulfill you, that, uh, that the joy from those particular objects will, will eventually fade away. It is foolishness to do that. Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven. Where is your treasure stored? Is it upon this earth like the rich man's? Are you just building a bigger garage to hold it all? Or getting a bigger house to hold it all? Or is it stored in heaven where nothing can get to it? Because obviously what Jesus is getting at here is not necessarily about money and possessions because we need money and possessions to live in this world, obviously. But what Jesus is getting at here is the importance to a single-minded adherence to God. Not the things of this world. And in order to answer this question properly, to see it properly framed, you have to understand the second metaphor that Jesus talks about in verses 22 and 23 concerning the eyes. Because you may not even, even know or even see that you actually have a problem. You may, not, you may not even believe that you are worshiping idols by acquiring more wealth. Because these verses expand on the previous verses and you see that the eye becomes an illustration for the heart. So the terms heart and eyes in the scriptures can both refer to the inner person that sets life's direction. This is how Jesus is using, uh, using the language here in these particular, in verses 22 through 23. And you can, you can see it throughout the Bible. So in Psalm 119 is a good place to see this kind of uh, interchanging of the word heart and the word eye. And it means the exact same thing. So in Psalm 119, the writer writes in verse 10, He says, I will seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. And then in verse 18, he changes to eyes. He says, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. And then in verse 36, back to heart. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish game. And then back to eyes and even verse 37. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. The Bible, again, I said this a couple of weeks ago, tells us that the heart is the wellspring of life. And all the issues of life proceed from the heart. Nowhere else. So just as your eye directs you where to go, your heart directs where your life is to go. So if your eye is good, it will have a single-minded devotion to the gospel, is what Jesus says here. Which in turn will direct you to do good things. You'll, you'll be generous. You'll want to be generous. You'll want to, to give your resources away. 
But in contrast, if your eye is bad, if it's dark, Jesus says then your whole body will be full of darkness. Not just your eye. Your whole body will be full of darkness, uh, which will result in covetousness. It will result in a lack of generosity. You will be the one building bigger barns. To the eye that is bad is a heart that is selfishly indulgent. If your heart is consumed with the comforts, personal peace, and influence of the world, it will become dark, and then it will become insensitive to the gospel. This is the reality. Next week... Like I said, you know, we, we, we break, the, we break the, the Bible up into sections just so that we can preach them uh, more easily and understand them better. Um, but the Bible, I mean, Jesus preached this sermon in one sitting. You know, we're doing it over like six or seven weeks. So next week we'll, we'll see Jesus talk about anxiety right behind these particular verses. But he's, he, you see that he's telling them not to be anxious over what? Over things over what you will eat and what you will wear. Because when your heart is fixed on those things and not the kingdom first, it drives you to anxiety. I'm sure a lot of you are holding a lot of anxiety and that is the reason you are anxious. Well, it's impossible for this not to happen if you've divided your interests between, uh, between God and your possessions. You will have dark eyes if that's the case. Because as we'll see in this final verse here, no one can serve two masters. It's impossible. You will be sing- singularly devoted to one or the other. It's a fact. So again, here in verse 24, we are faced with the decision of having a single devotion But this time, it's a single devotion to a particular master, a single master. Now, it's important to understand that when Jesus speaks of masters here, he's not talking about an employer, although you might feel like that at times. He's not talking about that because it's quite possible to hold two jobs, maybe even three jobs, and fulfill the assigned tasks and obligations that are given to you uh, by, by all of those jobs, and do quite well at that. I've done it before. I'm sure you've done it as well. Now, the idea that we are looking at here in verse 24 is master to slaves. So a slave owner has total control over a slave, 100%. The slave is not his own. There was no such thing as a partial or part-time obedience on a slave's part during this time. So the slave is owned, totally controlled by, and obligated to his one master. He has nothing left to give to anyone else. Nor is he allowed to give to anyone else. So Jesus goes on to tell us in strong language, using this illustration, that if we love one of these masters that we're, we're trying to serve at the same time, if we love one of these masters, you will end up hating the other master. 
Your actions alone will tell that one that will tell that one neglected master that you hate him because you will not have any time for him. That your life is not directed towards him. That your heart is bent elsewhere. That your that your affections are placed upon another and you have nothing left to give to this particular master. And then Jesus goes on to say that if you are devoted to one, you will end up despising the other, which is a little bit different than hating. You'll, you will despise the other because you will not be able to fulfill the other's demands. So then in turn, you will begin to grow angry. You'll get frustrated at that master. You'll get bitter and apathetic. Now, depending on who or what your master is, these feelings may be good and right to have. So if you are sensing this this strong pull by your wealth and the desire to have more and this uh, temptation to build bigger barns uh, and to get just acquire more things and then just to hoard it, then maybe having this, this, um, this, anger, this anger and this frustration and this apathy towards that is actually a good thing. That means the Spirit's probably at work in your heart in that way. And you're saying, I hate this about myself. I want, I want this dead. I don't want to serve this master. But if your master is something other than Jesus, these feelings are deadly. Because that means you are growing angry and apathetic toward Jesus. So you have to ask yourself the question and answer it today. You can do it now and just check out the rest of the time if you want to. You have my permission to do so. But who is your master? Or what is your master? If you were putting money and material possessions before God, Jesus says it's as if you hate and despise Him. Now you may not feel that. You'd be like, of course, didn't you hear, hear me singing this morning? And I, of course I love Jesus. But if, you, if those things are before God, you actually don't love Him the way you think you do. Another Calvin quote, just two. John Calvin said, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. Where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. But if you can say, even even in a small way, if you can say, as Paul says in the beginning of most of his letters, that he is a slave of Christ Jesus, then in turn, you will begin to hate God money and hates material possessions or anything else that competes for your affections above Christ. So what does this look like to have money or possessions as your master? And I want to give you a, I'm going to give you an extreme example. Um, but I would say this, that, um, that I think having money and possessions as your master is, is way more subtle and that it, that it can grow into this extreme example I'm about, I'm about to read to you, okay? So this, this example comes from Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. I've read it before, 
Um, but it's just an example of, of, of how wealth can consume you. Keller writes this, he says, After the global economic crisis began in mid-2008, there followed a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money in a Madoff Ponzi scheme, slit his wrist and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. When a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, which bought his collapsed firm, he took a drug overdose and leapt from the 29th floor of his office building. These men teach us that money and possessions can so consume your heart that it will block out God, obviously, but it would also block out your family, It'll block out your community. And then eventually it will take your very life. So on the opposite end, what does it look like to have God as your master? And for that, if you want to turn to Job chapter 1. I'm just going to read verses 13 through 22. Most of you are probably familiar with the story of Job. It's a true story. Job was a real man. This is what it says. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job was the wealthiest and most influential man, most powerful man in all the land at this particular time. And he lost everything. Everything. Everything that you could try to... You know, sometimes we say like, oh, okay, well, I've... I've lost that job, but I still have these two 
these two legs that I can stand on here with my family. I, can, I have some little investments over here. I think I'm going to be okay. Job didn't have anything. He lost all of his children to tragedy. He eventually loses his wife to bitterness and terrible theology. He loses his health. He loses his influence, his power. All of his investments are gone. So he went from rich to poor. He went from a fruitful family to no family. He went from healthy to the sickest of sick and from powerful to lowly. And you can say from influence to absolutely no influence. Not even the children could look upon Job. He was so gross and disgusting. So Job experienced the loss of everything that we think brings us peace and influence. Family, money, possessions, power, and I'm sure there, there are probably not many of us in our room, in this room, that can say this morning that you have lost everything as Job did. But I think at some level we all know the feeling of loss. But what does the Bible tell us Job did with those losses? Verse 20, again in Job 1. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, he doesn't deny that this is a terrible experience. And he fell on the ground and worshipped. And says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job doesn't sin in all of this. He doesn't charge God with any wrong. He doesn't say, doesn't say that. Mike Mason, in his commentary on, this, uh, on the book of Job, called the Gospel According to Job, he says, Wealth must not cling to us, but flow through us. We are not to be collectors of wealth as much as distributors of it, not owners, but stewards. If we are, then we, like Job, can say, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So how do we respond to all of this? Is it just to be more generous? Is it to feel guilty about having money and possessions? And if, that, if, that, if that's what you take away from this, then I have not done a good job expositing the Scriptures for you. Because that's not what Jesus' point is here. Now you may feel that a little bit, and that's okay. But that's not Jesus' end game here. It's not to make you more generous or to make you feel bad about having money and things. But it's Jesus calling you to this single devotion, this single heart, which is simply a heart that is devoted to the gospel above everything else. And these three metaphors here, this of treasure and light and slavery, they join forces to show you uh, what it looks like to have a heart that is fully devoted to the gospel. So one way that you can begin to respond to this is to expose the idols of your heart by comparing them to Jesus. Hold them up next to the light of Christ and see how well they shine in Jesus' brightness. 
And when you do this, you begin to see how unfulfilling your idols truly are and how all-satisfying Jesus truly is. And that, that vision of the reality of Jesus will then free you to store your treasures in heaven. Because you will recognize that this world is not your home. That these things that you acquire bring no lasting joy or peace. So it will free you to have good and healthy eyes that will lead you to be, to be generous people. And to give more of yourselves and your resources. But finally, and most importantly, it will free you to be a faithful servant to the one true Master, Jesus, who alone brings you the comfort and the peace and the satisfaction you so desperately long for and need above all the other offerings of this world. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for um, a hard reminder um, because I know we, we're all, most of us, I believe, are all Americans and we, in this room, and uh, we live in a country that is uh, wealthy beyond belief. That constantly, through all sorts of means, we are told that this is what will make us happy. That will make you happy. These people will make you happy. This power will fulfill you. This, this thing will give you peace and satisfaction. And we all know that none of it does it for us. We all walk away from opening that box from whatever we ordered from feeling empty. Or that person that has hurt us again that we put so much trust in and uh, so much uh, risk towards Uh, disappoints us and we leave feeling empty. So God, I pray that we would all, whether we've been walking with you for many, many years or, or today is the day of our salvation for the first time, that we would all find our hope and true and deep satisfaction in Christ alone. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.